Today is a special day because we have a really great and awesome guy in the building who is our guest speaker. His name is Les Bon Bernard. And Les and I and our wives, we go way back to First Alliance days. We are First Alliance couples. We came out of First Alliance, called into pastoral ministry, and have been in touch with each other over the years. And Les and his wife Dawn have been pastoring in the Calgary area for, for a while. Since 08, they've been at First Alliance Church, where he is the senior associate pastor. Now, here's the thing about Les Bombernard. God has given him great potent spiritual gifts in the area of equipping and releasing people in the body of Christ. His mobilization gift is phenomenal. I've seen it with my own eyes, and I've experienced it in my life personally as he's, he's sharpened me. And uh, he oversees a whole bunch of ministries, including you know, making sure that the kids, youth, young adults, families, marriages, all that is mobilized, but also he does leadership development. And a couple years ago, as God was giving increase to our church, we thought, we need more wisdom. So I sought out Les. I said, would you, would you kind of mentor me to the next level? And he said, absolutely. So we met a couple times with some of our staff, and um, he poured into us. And God has given this man an anointing for kingdom structure. That's very rare. Not everybody can see kingdom structure. Um, and, and Les has got that. He's got that ability. He helped shape us uh, as a church so that the way we have our staff culture now centered around our vision and our values and our four essentials, that was because of this man. And so I'm personally just so uh, indebted to him, and I thank God for him. Now, on Father's Day, it's a big day for Les Bombernard and for Don, his wife, because they got three kids. They're adults now. they got nine grandchildren. And the ninth just came in the way just recently. Seven boys, two girls, right? So awesome, so incredible. Happy Father's Day. Come on, you guys, join me in welcoming... Les Bombernard. Okay, three grown kids, married, nine grandkids. I'm just tired. <laughs> the first seven were boys, which meant every time they came to our house, it was like we got our own little personal tsunami. And then the first little girl showed up. And if I'd known what was going to happen, I would have, well, we would have ordered the girl sooner. <laughs> because now, instead of swinging from the chandeliers and throwing paper airplanes everywhere and playing soccer in the living room, they're sitting on the carpet with her reading stories. It's awesome. It's just fantastic. I don't know what happened. But it's just been this amazing thing. And she's, well, the two-and-a-half-year-old kind of runs the show now, and she's bossing the, the little cousins around all the time, and now we've got the little four-month-old, so I'm sure she'll follow in her sister's footsteps. It is great to be with you. Um, we love these guys, and we love your church, and it's nice to just be able to come up the road and find family. Sweet. You know, we spent a whole week together with the broader family at Assembly two weeks ago, and so now to be able to come here and spend time with you, uh, we're just thrilled about that and just appreciate the invitation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about dads, but not right away. And so we're going to kind of loop back onto that after we spend a little bit of time thinking about a guy that you might not have given much attention to. Um, most of you in the Old Testament, if you had to list people that you're kind of up on, you would include somebody like Nehemiah. 
Lots of us know about Nehemiah. He's the, the builder. He's the one who went back and kind of did all the construction and everything. And lots of people, when they think about leadership, they think about Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah had a, a friend, a co-worker, that doesn't get nearly as much airtime, but had a significant role to play in what took place during that period. So his name's Ezra. You may not have heard of Ezra, but in the Old Testament, you have the two books, Nehemiah and Ezra, but in the Jewish packaging of the Bible, that's actually just one book, because it just tells one story. It's the return of the remnant of God's people back to their homeland. And so it's been a very, very difficult time for them. Jeremiah had prophesied that they would be in captivity for 70 years. And that's exactly what happened. They got hauled off by the Babylonians. There was a regime change even there. And so now we pick up the story with things kind of coming back, with movement happening. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the return to the land and to the city, the place that was at the core of their identity, who they were and who they worshipped. Now, you might also know that this same period of time is when Esther took place. So Queen Esther ends up fitting into this same little window of time. So here's a quick chronology just to kind of help you sort things out. So Babylon begins invading and deporting the people. But it's not enough in those days to just capture them and take them away. You have to destroy everything. And so they destroyed Jerusalem. They tore it to shreds. The temple was left in rubble. It was like, good, take that, was kind of the approach. Then there's the regime change. And then ultimately, years later, Cyrus permits the Jews to return. And so over time, about 50,000 people make the move back. They begin rebuilding the temple. You remember in Nehemiah, there was the whole issue about the walls. There's some stuttering. It takes a bit of time to get this sorted out. But ultimately, the temple's completed and dedicated. And we see this transformation happening. Now, in Ezra chapter 7 through to chapter 10, we see Ezra's move to Jerusalem. Because we're not just interested in building walls. Let's get this. This is a real important principle. We don't just build walls, we build people. Okay? And so Ezra's coming to start to take that role. So he comes up in chapter 7, verse 6, to Babylon, from Babylon. He was a scribe, it says. He was well-trusted in verse 12. It says that the king had given him a, just bags of money to go and help do this rebuilding, and he gave him a blank check for anything else he might needed. He appointed magistrates and judges. At one point, he goes, yeah, we're missing something. What is it? Oh, it's the Levites, the people who lead in worship. They're not here. So he goes and he gets them sent back. He prays and he fasts and he just takes on this tremendous spiritual role. In chapter 9 in Ezra, God's people had been intermarrying and this was not something that they were supposed to be doing. And Ezra catches wind of this. And as soon as he heard this, verse 3 says, he begins to weep and to pray and he begins to fast. And the people respond to Ezra leading them in this repentance. 
And so in chapter 10, we see this tremendous revival breakout as Ezra's response brings a response from the people. And you see it also, it's recorded in Nehemiah 8. The people gather, they're reading the law. There's a response of the people in worship. There's weeping, this tremendous sense of God's presence on them. And at one point, the teaching changes. No, don't weep. No, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so there's this resurgence and revival. And then in Nehemiah 12, the walls get rebuilt and away we go. So they've spent, that's actually just kind of a panoramic view of a few chunks of scripture that we're going to kind of talk about a bit today. So they spent 70 years in exile. Jerusalem has been reduced to rubble. It's dawned on the people. It's dawned on them that it's their rebellion that has brought this about. The voices of the prophets, they're ringing in their ears. They'd ignored them. And so they have some questions. They're the same kind of questions you and I would ask. Is God done with us? Has the covenantal relationship that had been established with Abraham and then given to David been destroyed as a result of this season in our life? See, this is a really critical time in the life of God's people. And they needed solid spiritual leadership And they needed it now. So all of a sudden, enter Ezra. It's this cool thing. And so you have to ask yourself, what is it about a guy like Ezra that he can move back into Jerusalem in the midst of all of of the stuff that's been going on, and he can be instrumental in bringing about revival and renewal amongst God's people? If there was a key, if there was something that we could grasp from Ezra's life, I think it would be good for us to focus on that. And so, being a guy, one thing is good to focus on, right? Some of you can multitask, I'm not one of them. So we're going to focus on one thing, and that's just this little passage in Ezra that helps us understand the reality of not just who Ezra was, but what was it that made him such a dynamic influence amongst God's people. And I actually stumbled across it. So one of the things I like to do, you may be like this too, I like to, from time to time, read through the Bible, the whole thing, but every time I do it, I read it in a different translation. Because you pick up different stuff. Sometimes you'll read something, and in one translation, something will jump out at you. Other times, it'll be in a different translation. So it's just one of those things where you read through, and you just trust God to speak to you. And so I was reading through Ezra in the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Fantastic. And I got to this verse in chapter 7. It was verse 10, and it was like, I read it, and I went, whoa, 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 what is that? It just startled me. It was such a powerful verse. And I went and I said, how could I have missed this? So I went back and I looked at some of the other translations. It said the same thing, but it just said it in such a way that at that particular time, it captured my imagination. And this was the verse. Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God, to living it, and to teaching Israel to live its truths and ways. Now you sit there and you go, that would have been easy to skip over right? How many times? I'd read it many times. But this time in the message, it just absolutely stopped me. Ezra had committed himself to studying the revelation of God, to living it, and to teaching Israel to live its truths and ways. Now remember, Ezra is this spiritual leader who is bringing about phenomenal transformation amongst God's people. 
And when I saw this verse, it was like, it's the key. It's the thing. It's the one thing that made the whole thing make sense for me. And this is the thing. It's the order in which the things are said. Ezra had studied the revelation of God. He had lived it. And then he taught Israel to live its truths and ways. Oh, hold it. Hold it. That's something. See, the order is a big deal. This is what jumped out on me. One commentator said of this verse that it was his rule of action. It was the thing that made everything make sense for him. Because the order matters. And the reality is many times we get the order wrong. We may study some. Sure, that's great. We get all this information. We'll come back and talk about that. We teach and we invest and all the rest of that. But what about that little spot in the middle? Living it. See, this is huge. Ezra studied it, but then he lived it. And out of that came the capacity for him to invest in others and see transformation come out of the power. His leadership and ministry came out of the overflow of that order. And not missing that piece of actually taking the Word of God and putting it into practice. Living it. See, before he imparted it, before he taught it, before he tried to transfer it to anybody, he made sure he knew it, and then he lived it. He walked it. And the Scriptures have always linked this together. This idea that we have to know the Word of God, but that out of it, it is actually supposed to transform our lives. Something is supposed to happen as a result of us knowing it. Deuteronomy 5, but you stand here with me so that I can give you all my commands, decrees, and regulations. You must teach them to the people so that what? They can obey them in the land that I'm giving them as their possession. The Great Commission, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's this link between taking in the information and actually having it result in some activity and action on our part. I like reading the pastoral epistles. It kind of gives me the tap every now and then. Oh yeah, remember, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Oh yeah, okay, I got it. Right? One of the versions I really love to read them in is the Phillips, because it just kind of flows really nice. And in 1 Timothy 4, it says this. Um, you wouldn't find it in the Phillips as well, because it doesn't list the verses, but you just have to sort it out. So it's, this is what it says in 1 Timothy 4. Take time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Take time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit as though there's supposed to be some activity attached to this idea of being prepared and ready. Now, most of us, let's think about physical fitness for a minute. I suspect almost everybody has an app or a booklet or a DVD that's supposed to help them get physically fit. Now, you put the phone in your pocket and you just become physically fit, right? Hello? That's not working for you, is it? Right? We have the DVD, it sits on the shelf. 
right? If you put the DVD in, somebody starts yelling at you, right? Because they want you to do stuff. But we have all the information we need. We're not lacking information. What are we lacking? Application. We're not actually doing anything with it. It just sits there. And so when Paul says to Timothy, take time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit, he is not asking us to put an app in our pocket. He's asking us to do something. There's a huge difference. It goes on and says this, bodily fitness has a certain value, but spiritual fitness is essential both for this present life and the life to come. There is no doubt about this at all. And Christians should remember it. It is because we realize the paramount importance of the spiritual that we labor and struggle. We place our whole confidence in the living God, the Savior of all men, and particularly of those who believe in Him. These convictions should be the basis of your instruction and teaching. We're to be spiritually fit, which means we take the instructions and we apply them. And fitness comes from that. It doesn't matter whether it's physical or spiritual. James 1, as if we needed it to be put a little bit more succinctly. But don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Okay, I got it now, right? Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the Word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free... And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's pretty powerful. Now, back to Ezra. Some people think that Ezra wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles. I don't know. You'd have to be above my brain grade to be able to sort that out. But I know that he actually modeled his life after one of the passages that's pretty familiar to us. Because in 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And when you look at Ezra's life in the passages that we're looking at today, that's exactly what he did over and over and over again. He consistently applied that, humbling himself, praying, seeking God's face, turning from his wicked ways, and taking on the obligation of the people. And what happened? God did hear from heaven, did forgive their sins, and did heal their land. We see it in Ezra 8, verse 21 and following. There's a fast, and he humbles himself, it says in the text. And then he goes on and fasts and petitions God some more. And he he was in a bit of a problem at that particular point because he told the king that his God was powerful. In fact, in the text it says, he had said to the king that the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So we don't need any of your help. And then he's got all these bags of money and all these people he has to travel back to Jerusalem. He's going, what if we get mugged? But he can't go back and ask the king for soldiers because he just said his God was enough. Oops. So what do you do now? You pray. You pray and you fast. And that's what he did. And then it says in verse 23, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. It's kind of matter of fact, right? Oh, and by the way, yes, God answered our prayer. See, Ezra's pattern of life was based on living out the Scriptures. 
If you go and look at chapter 9, where this intermarriage thing happens, he did it again. He takes that pattern of 2 Chronicles 7.14 and he applies it to the situation and healing and revival break out in their midst. So it was all about this idea of studying and living and then teaching and inviting others in. And I want to say this to you. Our fruitfulness comes out of the correct application of the sequence that guided Ezra's life. The order matters. How many times do we go off and teach? We haven't been living it. We've barely been studying it. And we expect God to bless that. Or we study it and then we teach it, but we haven't been living it. Friends, the order matters. And the thing that made this work so powerfully in Ezra's life is he figured that out. He got it. See, our world, the world you and I live in, is in a constant quest for knowledge and information. Just more, 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 right? It's ridiculous. We can't keep it sorted out. And yet, it's not just knowledge and information we need, but we have to apply that knowledge in order to experience transformation. Isn't that right? We get way more information than we ever apply. And that's actually our problem. So much input, but very little output. Now, you do that with food, fit won't be one of the words they use to describe you, <laughs> right? And so the same thing happens with spiritual. We're not spiritually fit because we just take in and 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 take in, but we don't ever actually apply it. This is a big challenge for us. Now, here's what J.I. Packer said about this in one of the best books ever written, Knowing God. He said this, Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. Now, that's a profound quote. Yes, that should scare the daylights out of us. Let me read it again. Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. You can know an awful lot about God and not know Him at all. I actually, I've bumped up against this. I can remember one time I was involved in this chaplaincy thing. It was a multi-denominational thing. There were some mainline guys there. And one of these mainline guys, man, this guy was incredible. He never used an English Bible. He always read, he even did his devotions out of the original text. He had his Hebrew and he had his Greek, and he was as fluent in those. Actually, I think he was more fluent in those than I am in English. Like, it was crazy. But here's the problem. He didn't know Jesus. Do you get it? He knew all about God. He knew all about God in the original languages. But he didn't know Jesus. So, Ezra's guiding us into something that's huge here. And it comes to this reality that you and I have to have a relationship with the living God. We have to have a relationship with Him. 
It's not about information only. It's not about being able to quote chapter and verse. It's not about knowing the answer. It's about knowing Jesus. One of my favorite verses, I use it all the time. John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will what? Bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's, you just repeat that last word with me. Apart from me, you can do Okay, that's fairly clear to me. It's like, that's a big deal. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, it's not about just knowing that Jesus is the vine. It's about being connected to him and having his life course through you to transform you and then be used to transform those around you. It's this abiding relationship. Now, I want to stop for a second here. Because my prayer has been that if there is individuals within the sound of my voice, either here in this gathering or watching online, and what I've been saying all of a sudden makes you go, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's me. I know about God but I don't know him. Friend, if that's you, and that's your thought right now, the Spirit of God is actually drawing you to Jesus right now. And I think it would be a disaster for us to miss that opportunity. So what I want us to do is I just want us to bow our heads for a second. If you're, if you're a believer, just start praying. And friend, if that's you, if you're going, that's me, and you want to change that? You want to go from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus? You want to go from that place of having the capacity to do nothing to be able to bear fruit, fruit that lasts? Then just let me pray and you follow along in your heart with me and accept Christ right now. Oh, Jesus, this is incredible. It finally makes sense. I've been trying to do it my own way, do my own thing. Oh, forgive me for that. I want to turn from pursuing my own life, my own way, and I want to follow you. I invite you into my life as Savior. I surrender my life to you as Lord right now. And I thank you that rather than just knowing about you, I can know you. And now I do. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Friend, if you just prayed that, there's going to be prayer people up here at the end of the service. There's ministry people around. They would love to chat with you. Don't leave here without telling somebody that you just did that. Because that's, that's incredible. It's fantastic. Okay, so this abiding relationship, where does that come from? What is it, how do we continue to develop and maintain that? Well, I think the first thing, it's in the Scriptures, on multiple occasions, Jesus was asked and was talking to his disciples about what does it mean to be a disciple? And there were all kinds of answers, but this was the big one. This is the big answer. If you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross every day and follow me. That's the big answer. You have to pick up your cross every day and follow me. And what was the cross in their heads? It was not some little gold thing dangling around their neck. What was the cross in their minds? It was the place where you died. 
It's the place where you died. When Jesus said, you pick up your cross every day and you follow me, he's saying, you die to yourself, you surrender to me, and you allow me then, the vine, to live my life in you and through you. The surrendered life is not for the preferential. It's not for a few. It's the foundation of what it means to be a disciple. To live that surrendered life. But then, it goes on. Because I think there's another clue in this for you and for me. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5. And it says this, be careful then how you live. I agree. I think that's a good word. Be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, This abiding relationship that enables us to not just know about it, but to live it, comes out of this sense of being rooted in Christ, surrendering our lives to Him, and then trusting Him to fill us with His Spirit to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. See, the text is actually pretty powerful here. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is my theory on this. Every single one of us, is under somebody or something's influence. You get to pick. God says, be under mine. And the way you do that is by being filled with the Spirit. Be under my influence. John 7, 37 to 39 says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Whoever, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit with whom whom those who believed in him were later to receive. See, here's the deal. We think about influence. We think about what Ezra experienced. We think about what we want to see happen in a place like Airdrie or in our broader world. We want to see transformation. And transformation comes as we surrender to the in working of the Holy Spirit, and then rivers of living water will flow from within you. What do rivers of living water bring? Refreshing, vitality, fruitfulness. What happens if you and I take those rivers of living water everywhere we go? Our neighborhoods, our family gatherings, our workplaces, shopping. Here's one. (laughs) Driving on Deerfoot. You'd be noticeable, right? Rivers of living water. See, refreshing streams of the living God gushing out, running everywhere, impacting the lives of those around us. Now, you just had Rob Reamer here. Here's a quote from his River Dwellers book. The baptism of the Spirit is God's ultimate purpose for His people. He didn't save us so we could go to heaven. He saved us so we could, He could fill us so full of Himself We could have intimacy with Him. We could become more like Him. And we could change the world with Him. We can't live the Christ life without the Spirit's empowerment. We can't bear the fruit of Christ for the kingdom without the Spirit's empowerment. 
right? This relationship is huge. It's the deal. It comes out of living it. After you've seen the truth, you apply it. Then comes the fruitfulness. Impacting lives. Dads, you want to impact the lives of your kids? Grandpas, you want to impact those generations that are chasing you down the street? This is how you do it. You study the revelation of God, and then you live it. And then out of that power, you invite them into it. But it's not just for dads and grandpas. It's your neighborhood. It's your workplace. It requires this deep abiding relationship with Christ, fueled by the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, so that our lives are actually patterned after Ezra's. Studying it, living it, and then inviting others into it. I love your kind of missional phrase, releasing the kingdom of God on earth. Whew, that's a big one, right? A couple of thoughts. Try pulling that off in your own strength. Just saying, right? But here's the bigger thought. Here's the thought I want you to get that relates to what Ezra teaches us. Releasing the kingdom of God on earth will not happen until it's been released in you. It has to be released in you first. That's why revival starts right here. It starts with me. It starts with you. And as we study it and as we live it, then we have the power and the authenticity and the integrity to be able to invite others into it. And God works that way every time. Encountering God's presence, embracing kingdom life, experiencing community, changing the world. Those are great things to aspire to, but they're to be lived. Not just some catchy phrase on the wall, right? They're to be lived. There was a phrase that actually described Ezra. So we've talked a lot about Ezra, this one thing, his kind of his strategy. But there was a phrase that then described Ezra. I think it's pretty cool. He was described this way. For the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. Oh, hey, wait a minute. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have said of me? Wouldn't that be a great thing to have said of you? You know, I'll talk to the dads just again for a second. There's going to come a day where they're going to be gathered around a hole in the ground and they're going to drop you in it. I'm not saying that to be morbid. I'm saying it because that day's coming. Wouldn't it be cool if on that day they looked down and they said, the gracious hand of the Lord our God was on him. And now it's on me. Right? It's huge. Three times in this text, he's described that way. Verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. 
He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 27 and 28, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Oh, friends, there it is. Which one of us here today wouldn't want that said of us? Well, here's how it happens. You study it, you live it, and then you invite others in. You study it, you live it, and you invite others in. Are you and I seeking to influence others out of that kind of fullness? Hmm. It's a great day for us to stop and take stock to see how we're doing. Oh, Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of Ezra. The thing that fueled him, the thing that made it possible for this great revival to take place, the rebuilding, the renewal, the revitalization, all of it came as a result of him being passionate, devoted to you. Not just knowing about you, but knowing you. Not just studying, but living. And then out of that fullness, inviting others in. Oh God, may that be true of us. I pray that increasingly for each of us, when people think of us, the description that will come to mind is that the gracious hand of the Lord our God is on us. Amen.